most powerful thing we have as believers is our Christian testimony. Understanding who we are as blood-bought believers and being able to convey that to other people is a very powerful and wonderful gift that we all have as Christians. Clarity on your conversion and clarity on the gospel helps give you clarity in terms of who you are, what you live for, the priorities of your life, where you're going, what you give to, how you understand your existence comes from that clarity. A lack of clarity in the gospel, the theology of the gospel, a lack of clarity in terms of your conversion testimony is unsettling. It muddies and muddles a clarity of thought in terms of priorities, goals, where you're going, what you give to. It's important to have clarity. It's important to be able to share that clarity with others and to communicate your testimony. What I find uh, when I encounter people who are open to hearing the gospel, what I find is that when you can share your testimony and your story, it is a very, very important means of communicating Christ and eternal life to people. Just sharing your story. And I'll just say this, you know, not to in any way um, make you feel uncomfortable, but first hour, there was a guy who was here, and um, I had invited him to come to church this week, and we sort of got, kind of fell into a conversation at the um, club where I swim. We were talking, and I began to connect with him because our stories had a unique overlapping effect. Uh, he is a fraternal twin, and I have fraternal twins. And so my fraternal twins, as they ran around the pool area, were there, and we just began to talk about that. And he said, yeah, I'm like that one, and I'm kind of like that one in these different, unique, and varying ways. And so the Lord was wedding together um, our circumstances and our stories as he was a guy who participated in Young Life as a high schooler, and I participated in Young Life, and we both had a very similar experience. I, though, became a Christian through that experience, and he had not yet believed and become a Christian. He was very clear on that to me, which people are not always clear about their testimonies. And so I began to see this as the Lord's providence, as the Holy Spirit was opening up the conversation. And we kept talking and kept uh, dialoguing about my story about what it means to leave behind the world that's not satisfying. He's going, yeah, yeah, I know, those things are not satisfying. And so he was very um, open to coming to church and said he would, and guess what, he did, and we talked afterwards. I didn't spy him out in the crowd when I gave my introduction, very similarly to just how I did, and he said it was okay that I used him as the opener. And so we laughed about that, but, you know, this is evangelism. This is sharing the gospel of Christ with people as we see them, as we're going, as we're living our normal life. And the easiest, I think, most profound way to do it is to understand with clarity your own conversion, testimony, and story and share that in light of the gospel of grace that comes through Christ alone, faith in Christ alone for salvation. And having that clarity is a very powerful thing. And Paul the Apostle had that clarity. We're going to be looking in the weeks to come at Philippians 3 at a profound testimony of 
a man's life who knew that all of his works righteousness was nothing, was loss, was refuse, was dung. All his religious duties, all of his Phariseeism, all of his accomplishments meant nothing compared to being saved to know Jesus Christ personally and intimately. And that's Philippians 3. It's one of the most popular chapters and profound chapters in all of scripture especially in terms of the gospel and having a spiritual testimony of knowing Jesus personally it's what we should be all about and so we're going to look at that we're going to open up chapter three this morning as part of our communion time but I want you first to look back at first Timothy just again a soundbite about how crystal clear Paul was about his own testimony first Timothy um, chapter one Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now look at the clarity here. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you turn over one book of the Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in the same spot, verse 12. It's kind of Paul's rhythm to go right into his testimony. Into verse 12, he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He was confident in the gospel, and it made him a confident, empowered, missionary, evangelist, pastor, preacher who gave his life to Christ and the gospel. The gospel and our testimony in Christ is what ignites us to live for him. So I want to look at Philippians 3 this morning. We're opening this chapter up. This is the definition of a Christian. Any Christian can find themselves defined in the first three verses of chapter 3. This is a prelude to Paul's testimony. It kind of opens things up where Paul, he's going to talk a lot about what happened to him and his own experience in the Lord. But before he talks about him, what he wants to do is he wants to talk about the church. He wants to talk about them first and foremost. His heart is going outward first to this Philippian church. And he, in particular, wants to make sure that the church is safe. He wants them to be safeguarded from poison that can come in to corrupt the gospel. So he wants to protect their souls first before he talks about his testimony. Follow as I read verses 1 and 2. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate. The flesh. Paul is making a natural segue here. He begins in verse 1 with the word finally. Any good preacher says finally, and what they mean is, hey, I'm going to write two more chapters, right? Anyway, that's what he's doing here. He's just making a verbal transition to say, hey, we've been talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus, about their stories, about what Christian growth looks like, but now I want to transition to talk about you and to safeguard you from some wolves that are coming to um, steal your joy, to unseat your settledness, and, and to make you 
um, uh, unsure about your salvation and perhaps tempt you to start to believe into a false gospel. So he's in protection mode. Whenever Paul talks about the gospel and protecting the church from wolves, look out. He's going to now open up his verbal flamethrower, okay? That's what Paul does. And we'll look at a few spots in Galatians where he does it there. 2 Corinthians 11, he does it there. He pulls no punches when he's talking about safeguarding people's souls. And that's what he's doing in these few words and these few verses. Well, he's in protection mode, but he calls the church first and foremost to protect themselves by rejoicing in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This is one of 16 times Paul mentions joy, and he's saying, look, shoot your hearts vertical towards the Lord. When you have people that come in and want to steal your joy or tell you to be works-oriented instead of trusting in the gospel of grace alone, the best protection is for you to worship the Lord and say it's all about him. It's not about me. It's not about what I can do. It's the antidote to works righteousness, trusting the Lord. So he says, my brothers, do that. Rejoice. People want sometimes something new, but Paul says, look, I'm going to take no shame in repeating the basics to you of, of the old and true gospel. Look at this. He says, to write, verse 1, the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What does he want them to be safe from? Well, he wants them to be safe from what he's going to talk about he fell into in chapter 3. Remember, Paul's going to talk about, if you've read this in Philippians 3, how he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. But in verse 8, he says, I count all of my works as rubbish. And that is the Greek word skubalon, which I'm not going to go into how graphic that is in terms of what rubbish is, but it's talking about excrement. He's saying all of that is excrement. It's dung. It's all bad. It means nothing. It's foul. It's something that I don't count as important to me at all. I'm repulsed by the fact that I was trusting in my own works and I'm trusting in grace. And so he wants the church to be safe in their thinking in terms of their testimony in the gospel. That it was nothing they did. It was all by grace alone. It's safe for you. And so he's not apologizing for repeating this. This is the nutritious meal that he probably had given them verbally and had written um, time and time again to this church to safeguard them. There's a lot of things we can eat that fill us up that are good to the taste buds, but you know the meat and potatoes and vegetables, that's what we need told over and over again to safeguard us. That's where Paul's going. Verse 2, he repeats a, a warning shot three different times in verse 2. It's blepete. It's look out, look out, look out. He's saying warning, warning, warning. I can't, you know, I can't resist telling this sort of silly anecdote. My very first Greek word that I ever spoke in class publicly was blepo, and that's the word here, blepete, to look out. And I tried to, um, I, I had three years of Spanish, and so I was so nervous in class that I, instead of saying blepo like you're supposed to, I went, I went blepo, which, you know, was, uh, friends never let me um, live that down. It was just kind of a, a silly thing. But he's saying, look out. And he pulls no punches here. Look what he calls um, these false teachers. They're not there yet, but they're coming to the church. And he knows they're coming. So he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Now, I'm calling these people in our outline, um, calling them almost Christians or wolves. 
They attack those who are vulnerable. It's, we're defining differences between true and false Christians. He starts with false Christians here. People who look like Christians. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, as Paul talked about in Acts 20. They're people that look fine. They, they look like they're coming to help you. They look like they're coming to advance your spirituality, but really they're coming, whether they know it or not, to undo your faith. False teachers. It's, um, it's a dangerous thing. We have them here. We have cult religions. We have even more subtle attacks that come from within inside the church where people will want you to look to anything but grace alone to settle your faith and settle your soul. And Paul is saying, and he's using very severe language, that there are people in the church, in this early stage of the church, that want you to add something to grace. Say, look out, they're dogs. They're, they're wolves. They're like these scavenger-like, dangerous, scurvy-filled, you know, hanging around the, the dump-type dogs that will snap at you and devour you if you're vulnerable. That's what he's calling these people. It's the Judaizers. It's um, people who were Jews by ethnicity, and they were looking at the Gentiles, non-Jewish people by ethnicity, who were coming into the church, and these Jews were saying, hey, you know what? We're into this New Testament thing. We'll accept Jesus, you know, as part of our faith in keeping the Mosaic Law. Um, and we're accepting this new um, phase of um, trusting God through Christianity. But if you really want to be secure in your faith, if you really want to be a Christian and be in our club, our Jewish club, then you got to get circumcised. Like if you really want to be saved and eternally secure, then you got to do this thing. Thing. If you haven't done it, you got to do it to be in the Lord. That's what was going on. We read more about that in Galatians 1. You know, if you've been saved by the Spirit, why are you trying to be perfected in the flesh? Galatians 3, 1. Hey, who has bewitched you? In other words, who, Paul is saying, who's given you this kind of spirituality that is works-based? That is not the gospel of grace. Again, verbal flamethrowers come out where Paul is using irony and sarcasm here, calling these Judaizers dogs. Why does he call them dogs? Well, first and foremost, understand this. We're not talking about household pets here. I've got one of those. And you know what? Sometimes Daisy's on my good side, and sometimes Daisy's just not on my good side. She's kind of a little big little miniature sausage that runs around our house, leaves presents up in rooms that I don't like to clean up, and uh, I never eat alone anymore, right? This dog is always begging on, um, you know, in full begging posture, um, whining and whimpering for food. And you know what? Sometimes she's good and she gets some props, and other times I could just send her on into this category of dog. But dog here is not a compliment. The New Testament and the Old Testament really doesn't talk about dogs as man's best friend or household pets. I like them in general. But right here we're talking about we're talking about dogs that were in packs and that would, would prey on people in a dangerous way. And it's also where Paul is turning the tables on the Jews. There were Jews who were trusting in their flesh who were not saved. There are saved Jews, but we're talking about Judaizers who were unsaved Jews who would use the word dog in a derogatory way and look at Gentiles who were not circumcised and say they were dogs. You're dogs. You're outside of the club. You're not obeying the Mosaic law, so you're a dog. And Paul's instead saying, no, no, the Gentiles aren't dogs. You're the dog. And so that's, that's what he's doing here. He's just putting it back on them. And he wants to, to wake everybody up to what's going on. 
That's what he says. He says, look out for that. I mean, I, I would add to that. I mean, look out for people who come to your door. You know, you have Mormons, you have Jehovah's Witnesses, you have people that show up, and we want to be kind to people, but don't give them a greeting. Don't interact. I mean, my warning to you would be don't interact with them as if you're verbally sparring about sort of harmless things. They want to win you to their false teaching. I know people. I have extended family who have been won to those things. You know, hey, just read this. Watch this video. Hey, I'll read your stuff and you read my stuff. Don't do that stuff. Second John forbids that. We're not supposed to give false teachers a greeting because they've got satanic power behind their teaching. They do. And it's not just, you know, one little creedal difference here and there. No. They're trying to come in as angels of light to corrupt the true gospel and say Jesus is a created being. And when in fact Jesus is God. He was, he is, and is to come. He's the eternal second member of the Trinity that we worship. We're going to talk about that in verse 3. But Christ is the issue and grace alone and knowing him is the issue that's at stake when people try to sway you away. I've got, uh, you know, an acquaintance, a friend of, a, of mine at the club again who is a Mormon, and I talk with him, and he's adopted some children from China, and I, you know, applaud him for that, and I engage him as a human being, but I'm also very warned by his subtleties and what he could try to do in, um, you know, teaching me false doctrine and I don't entertain that but I'm looking in my own right for a door to share Christ with him but on my turf with the gospel not on his and so we have to be warned by this beware of these things look out for evildoers again sarcasm and irony at work the word literally is evil workers or evil workmen and Again, the one thing that false teachers want you to do is adopt their religion, which is works-based. There's two religions in the world. There's the true one, which is Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of Christ alone. That's Christianity. And then you have all the other religions of the world, even unnamed religions where people just worship themselves and and they're basically promoting that their good will outweigh their bad, and so God will let them into heaven. That's what everything else is, and that's false teaching. And he's saying, look, that's evil workers. They're saying, follow the Mosaic law, and they're saying it inappropriately. They're not saying, do that by faith. They're saying, do it in terms of evil work. Paul was very strong in his language about this. Just turn over with me for a second to Galatians. Let me just show you Galatians 3. Look how strong his language is here. Actually, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? We talked about that. Look over at Galatians 5, 1 through 4. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to that. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if anyone, or I'm sorry, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, he's talking to believers here. If you begin to add to Jesus and you go into a Jesus plus religion, Christ is of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Hey, if you add one work to your faith, you may as well have signed up for a works-based religion where you've got to keep it all perfectly to get into heaven. I'm saying don't go there. Look at the next verse. He gets even more severe. You are severed from Christ. 
That imagery is very intentional. He's saying, look, if you're accepting circumcision, which is the cutting away of flesh, then you are severed. Same type of language here. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, we don't have a lot of time to unpack the doctrine of perseverance here. But Paul is saying, in essence, look, if you think you're a Christian and you begin to be wooed and won to a false teaching where you have to be circumcised to be saved and you give over to that and you sign up for that and you put yourself under that, then you're showing that you're severed from Christ. You were never a Christian in the first place. It's a doctrine of perseverance. Once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian, and you're always going to persevere. If you stop persevering under the true gospel, even if you believed the true gospel before in your head, but your heart wasn't transformed, you're going to go into a works-based um, faith, and ultimately you'll show yourself to never having been a Christian in the first place. This idea of being on your deathbed, and you're, you're asked by the pastor or a Christian, hey, what are you trusting in? that, you know, you know you're going to die. What are you trusting in to be saved? And if someone says, well, you know, Jesus, and, you know, I was a good person. I, I remember this experience once when um, something happened to me, and, you know, there was this pastor who, you know, I love that pastor so much, and that pastor told me that I was such a good Christian. You know, my parents, they, they've always been Christians, and, and because I've always been part of the, the Kratz family or the fill-in-the-blank family, you know, we're all Christians. You know, I, I was raised in this denomination. That's great. Or I, I was baptized at this certain point. Or, wait, I took communion regularly. I, I gave. You know, I, and watch this. I stopped doing this at a certain point. Or I started doing that at a certain point. All that is dangerous language. Beware that kind of language. You don't want to be works-based in your thinking. It's an unsafe place to be. You have that near-death experience. You, you, you are encountering life and death matters. You're at a funeral. What you want to think about is, you know what? The only way that I know I'm going to heaven is God will keep his promise about the gospel. And he's applied the gospel to me, which is he has saved me by grace through faith alone. It's nothing I did. It's not based on religious works. You've heard the youth pastor say, or I did growing up, if you were in a youth group, perhaps and probably you were there because your parents were Christians and they wanted you in youth group. That was my situation. I was under a lot of youth group teaching and preaching as an unsaved teenager. And I would be in that portable and that youth pastor had us all to himself and he knew that most of us weren't Christians because he watched how we lived and joked around and what we were into. And so he would shut the door and he would preach Christ to us because he wanted us to get saved. He wanted to have a believing youth group. And so he would say things like this, and perhaps you've heard this before. You know, the, the, the difference between heaven and hell for you, young person, Boy, girl, perhaps is 18 inches. And that's the difference between your head and your heart. 18 inches. You mentally believe the gospel and you can answer the right question about what is the gospel, but your heart isn't yet transformed. So you miss heaven by 18 inches, young person. You sin sick, shriveled up soul. You know, I mean, we, we used to really, you know, shake in our boots, but they were right. Unless the Lord transforms the heart, you're not saved. 
And in the same way, if you're trusting in one solitary single work to get you into heaven, that's not the saving gospel. That's not saving faith. If you're a converted Christian and you begin to err that way, then it's my job with the word of God to bring you back on the path to say, no, I'm not trusting in works for salvation. I'm trusting in Christ alone for salvation. That's the gospel. That's the corrective in these verses. Well, false teachers would aim to add religious works to grace. They would attack the vulnerable as dogs. And then thirdly, they would aim at destroying others' faith. Look again at Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 at the end. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Mutilate is a very severe word. Again, Paul's ironic. He's sarcastic. Circumcision means to cut around. Mutilate means to cut off. It's, I'm not going to go into that, but he's talking very graphically, very strong here. He's reflecting on what was forbidden in Leviticus 21 for the priest to do. They could not mutilate the flesh. The priest of Baal, the prophets of Baal, when they were in the ring with Elijah on Mount Carmel, and they were calling down for Baal to receive the altar of worship. And they were, they were whooped up into a frenzy trying to manipulate their God that wasn't real to respond to them. And they began to lance themselves and cut themselves and mutilate themselves and bleed to get something to happen, which it never did. This is what is forbidden. This is what Paul is saying that Trusting in works on a heart level is doing. It's mutilating your faith. It's destroying something in you. You know, false teachers, they will spread false doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where Paul said, Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the church is already happening, and it's happened. And Paul said they're upsetting the faith of some. And he said it's spreading like gangrene all over the church. Let's not go there. Let's trust in the gospel alone, unashamedly trusting in the gospel of grace alone, which is the power of God unto salvation for people. You've got to clarify the gospel for yourself and for people. You know, bringing up the whole issue of circumcision in verse 2 that leads us into verse 3, I want to just talk about it for a second. Circumcision in the Old Testament began with Abraham when he was called um, to come to a land and to a people and to bring a covenant blessing in the Old Testament, which Israel, the nation of Israel, was born out of God making a covenant with Abraham. Circumcision was part of that covenant, part of that sign and symbol. But I want to emphasize that circumcision was always dealing first and foremost with faith and with a transformed heart. Abraham knew that. Yeah, it talks about ethnicity, it talks about the Jewish race and racial purity, but on a deeper level, remember Abraham was called the father of, fill in the blank, the father of what? Faith. He was the father of faith. It was always about believing. The Abrahamic covenant that went to the nations was based on faith. You can read about it in Genesis 13 and following. It's always a covenant of faith and heart. And I want to show you this from the Old Testament. I'll just pick out a few sound bites from the Old Testament. Exodus 6, where Moses was dealing with the people of God in, in Exodus here as they were leaving Egypt. He says, when the children of Israel did not listen, God speaking here, did not listen to Moses, he said they had, Moses said of them, they had uncircumcised lips. He's talking about their unrepentant hearts at that point. 
And then in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses had given the Ten Commandments and he called the children of Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their heart, to not be stubborn. He said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Lord, the Lord will circumcise your heart and will give you a heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. Jeremiah chapter 4, um, Jeremiah the prophet said, remove the foreskin of your heart. Song about the heart. He said in chapter 6, behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They're not listening with a believing heart. Chapter 9, Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming when I will punish those circumcised merely in the flesh. Picking up on this, Ezekiel the prophet he says, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh shall enter my, my sanctuary. It's a matter of the heart. Christians are those who have a transformed heart. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 2.29. He says, but a Jew, now he's talking about believing Jews, Romans 2.29, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. It's a transformed heart. Leads us to verse 3. Verse 3, this is the definition of a Christian. All of us as Christians can find ourselves in verse 3. This is the definition of a Christian. Paul says, contrasting the false teachers and false teaching of works-based religion, he says, for we are the circumcision. Stop there. Do you notice the language of state of being in that phrase we are the circumcision we are the fulfillment of that old testament symbol that old testament practice it was all a symbol leading to a transformed heart you as christians are the transformed ones from the inside out you are the true circumcision as the new american standard puts it you're the real deal whether you've gone through that work or not that is not the issue jeremiah 31 prophesied of this transformation that we've come to know it says that i will write the law on their hearts ezekiel 36 i will give them a new heart take out the stony one give them the soft one that's what was happening in the old testament that's what was greater revealed to us through the ministry of christ in the new testament Jesus said as much to Nicodemus, John 3, you must be born again. You've got to be transformed. Titus 3, we read it earlier. You are washed and sanctified and renewed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians says that old things pass away. Everything becomes new. You have a new heart. You're the circumcision. You don't base your faith and your trust on works. It's on what Christ has done. It's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. What well, leads us to what our life looks like. We're transformed to do things. Secondly, who worship by the Spirit of God. We're defined by a Spirit-empowered life. You're defined by being saved and transformed, but you're transformed to do something. The reason I say that this is talking about what we do and living by the power of the Spirit is the word worship here in verse 3, Latrua, we talked about last week. It's not talking about public corporate worship. This is the worship of service. Do you realize that everything you do is worship when it is giving glory to God? 
when you give, when you speak kindly to your spouse, when you're kind in shepherding your children, when you serve. We have a deacons and deaconess meeting coming up um, this Sunday, not today, but next week. And we'll gather up a bunch of us and we'll talk about assigned duties and ways that we can serve at Anchorage Grace Church formally and officially. But really the heart behind that is our spirit is prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something for Christ. We want to serve Christ. We worship with our lives. It's like we're ceremonial priests in duties, not out of dutiful obedience out of some kind of legalism, but we want to serve the Lord. We want to bring our gift out before the Lord that he's given to each one of us and serve him with gladness. Holy Spirit is all behind that. Incidentally, and it's important to see this, the Trinity is found in verse 3. Do you see that? We worship by the Spirit of God. You have the Holy Spirit here, the third member of the Trinity. You have God the Father here because the Spirit of God the Father is present in this verse, and then it's all to the glory of Christ Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-essential, three persons, distinct in personality, distinct in their various functions and functionality, but one God. This is the Trinity in verse 3, and the Trinity is active and is working in the believer's heart and life. To serve. We desire to serve. Secondly, we have a passion to worship Christ. The reason I bring up the involvement of the Trinity is our passion to give glory to Christ, guess where that comes from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompts your heart as a believer to love Jesus and to want to put Jesus on display. It's as natural as breathing to be a Christian, to, to inhale and hear about Christ and the Word of God, and to exhale and give glory to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is a mysterious member of the Godhead. He is working behind the scenes. He's convicting. He's empowering. He's inspired the Scripture. He, has, he, is, he is enlivening you to believe the Scripture. He has... He has empowered us to worship him. He empowers us to serve the Lord in the strength that he supplies. But he's always behind the scenes promoting Jesus. Have you ever seen that in the scripture? It's so important to see. A lot of people attribute a lot of things to the Holy Spirit. But if Jesus isn't part of the, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then you have to be careful as to whether they're really talking about the Holy Spirit at all. Let me just defend this um, in terms of talking my way clear in scripture. When Jesus came here on earth, I mean, the Holy Spirit was involved in his immaculate conception, right? The Holy Spirit was part of that. The Holy Spirit was affirming Jesus Christ at baptism as the Holy Spirit came and um, descended upon him like a dove. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to be vindicated through wilderness temptations and, and Satan's temptations, saw him through that. Jesus went into the temple and said, the Holy Spirit has anointed me to preach the good news, to bind the brokenhearted. And the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to respond to Pharisees and to give good teaching and powerful teaching. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus and empowered him as Jesus is fully God. But the Spirit was working and energizing Jesus as he performed miracles to 
do miraculous things to vindicate that Jesus is God. And then the Holy Spirit, when Jesus died, was part of raising Jesus from the dead. The scripture says that explicitly. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit descended, was sent upon the church. And what did the church begin to do? It began to preach Jesus. Right? The Holy Spirit's always promoting the glory of Christ. It's just part of his functionality. We just understand these things from Scripture. So the the church has been moved to preach Jesus as the Savior and Lord of our lives. And the Holy Spirit then was inspiring apostles and writers to give us our New Testament. And so the Holy Spirit now illumines our minds as we read this revelation. And who is this revelation all about? Jesus. That's what Jesus said in Luke 24. From the prophets to today, it was all about me. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And so the Holy Spirit gifts us in the ministry to promote Christ, to glorify Christ in worship. The Holy Spirit is involved in promoting Christ. And so when I see ministries where people claim the power of the Holy Spirit, and they say, you know, look, I'm propping up my ministry of the Holy Spirit now, or this new phase of the Holy Spirit. It was all about Jesus then, but now it's all about the Holy Spirit and these miraculous signs and wonders and these healings and things. And it's the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. You know what? I really question whether or not that's the Holy Spirit at all. It might be powerful, but the Holy Spirit is always functionally promoting the glory of Christ. We see this in verse 3. By the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. We worship, we serve by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God. You know why you want to give glory to Jesus? This invisible one that we love more than anyone else? Because of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's real, he's powerful, and he's on a mission through you to give glory to Jesus. You know, that's what happened to the woman at the well. She met Jesus. She didn't recognize Jesus. Jesus said, look, you're a Samaritan. You know, I'm, I'm asking you for water, which was just unheard of in that scene. Him being male, him being Jewish. He was going through all the barriers of race and religion. And she's blown away with that, but she didn't realize that's Jesus yet. And then behind the scenes, I, I believe that she was being given the living water, which is the Holy Spirit's work in her life, where she was transformed from the inside out. She was born again. And the first thing that she did was run into town and say, Is not this the Messiah? Is, that, is this not Jesus? That's the thing that happens. That's a defining mark of Christians. We want to promote the fame and glory of Jesus. Well, next, we are defined by a life of faith. And this is our final marker of a Christian. It says, and put no confidence in the flesh. Again, this is just reiterating that we're not living by works. We're not relying upon anything that we've done. We're not putting any confidence in, the Greek word here is sarks or actions or things that we do. Paul says that that is, verse 8, rubbish or dung or scubalon. All that he was concerned with, verse 8 at the end, is gaining Christ, knowing Christ, not having a righteousness of his own from the law, but everything is through faith in Christ. All he wanted to do, verse 10, was to know him, to know Christ. Is that your heart? That's what Paul is saying. Placing no confidence in the flesh. I don't live my life by my own power. 
It's all for Christ. And so I end as we go into the communion time by saying, what is it that is making you feel safe? Can I ask that question just as we come to a close? Why, why, why do you feel safe spiritually? Please don't feel safe because you take communion this morning. Please don't feel safe because you've been baptized. Please don't feel safe because you think you've got it all figured out. Please don't feel safe because you come from a Christian home. Please don't put your safety and your confidence in the fact that you attend church regularly. Our safety comes in Christ alone. We're the true circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and we place no confidence in the flesh. That verse is a faith statement. When you have saving faith, when you have genuine faith, it means that what you are saying in your heart that is prompted by the Holy Spirit is, I can't save myself. That's faith. Faith, the articulation of faith is, I didn't do it. God did it. It's the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. I didn't do it. I didn't save myself. People say, well, isn't faith like a work because you've got to have faith to be saved? Well, no, it's instrumental. It's what God is doing in your life by his regenerating work of the Holy Spirit where you, go, where you just have been illuminated to know I can't rely on anything I've ever done. That's saving faith. God did it. And he's working in me. And he's working in you. Amen? Well, I'd like to ask the men to come forward now as we transition to our community.